Dear friends, as we look again at this, as a, at the book of Genesis, and as we seek to understand it, we come now to Genesis nine. I help, or I uh, re, uh, please recall that last time that we studied uh, Genesis, we considered the covenant that God made with Noah. That it was a covenant that God made with Noah and with every living thing, even including the animals. And the content of that covenant was that God would never again punish the world with a flood. God made that promise to man, even though man continued in his state of depravity. Yet God, in his grace and mercy, made this covenant with Adam and with all living beings. In Genesis 9, uh, as I I sat down to, to think about preaching on this chapter, I really saw three things in this chapter which uh, I I wanted to consider. Normally, I would try to make a sermon revolve around one topic. That's generally how it's uh, best done. But really, uh, this this morning, I hope to consider three topics. So kind of three sermons kind of shoved into one. Uh, Again, normally I wouldn't do that, but I think that's the way to cover these three things. And that's why the, the title is a bit odd, too, of the sermon here, Covenant Signs, Human Life, and Canaan's Curse. Those are the three things I'd like to consider with you this morning. So let's begin, then, with covenant signs. Covenant signs. Now, last week, God made a covenant with Noah and with every living thing. And the content of that covenant, as I've said, was that God would never again destroy the world with a flood. That was the covenant that God made with Noah. But now if you can imagine with me, friends, that Noah and his sons are out of the ark. They're beginning to rebuild their lives, to rebuild their homes, to establish, right, uh, maintain a sustainable life with crops and and such. And they live their life. And you can imagine that that one day as they're working, they, they see clouds beginning to form. And perhaps the clouds grow bigger and deeper and darker. And then they see the rain to begin to fall from these clouds. And you can imagine that in the heart of Noah and his sons, there would have been that fear. What is this? Is this a flood again? Is God going to crush the earth in His wrath? We're just as wicked as we were before. We read at the end of this chapter about Noah and Canaan's sin, right? The depravity. Is God going to crush the earth with a flood again. Well, now God gives a sign to confirm His covenant, to confirm His covenant with with Noah. And you can see in, in Genesis 9 that in verse 12, God or verse 11, God talks about establishing His covenant But then in verse 12, God talks about this is the sign of the covenant which I am making. But look at verse 14 with me, please. Verse 14. Genesis 9 and verse 14. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth. Do you see that? There comes that cloud. That dark, that threatening cloud. And again, you can, you, can, you can imagine right in the hearts of Noah and his sons, his wives and their wives and their children, that there would have been some trembling, some fear. Is the ground once more going to open and water gush out and the waters flood down from the heavens until we're crushed, right? But now God says in verse 14, 
It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow or the rainbow will be seen in the cloud. That sparkling blaze of colorful glory will envelop, will encircle the earth. And you will see it. And of course, we know that you you only see a rainbow, right? When it's cloudy and rainy and, and some sun. Then you will see that rainbow, says God. And then you you will see it? No? Look at our text very closely. In verse 14, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and with every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And then in verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it. Now that's noteworthy, isn't it? God says, I will look upon the bow. Now, the way I've been explaining it to you, Noah and his sons would see the bow, and their fears would be calmed, right? They would see, this is a sign. Ah, that's right. Now I remember the covenant that God made with us, that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And certainly that's the case, right? It shall be for a sign of the covenant, it's said in verse 13. But in verse 16, we're told that the bow, the rainbow, is also for God. Now, friends, I would never dare say this if it were not written clearly in the scriptures. That the rainbow is also for God to see. Now, here again, we have one of these situations, right, where God is represented as a human, right, where God represents himself in human ways and in human terminology, in human ideas and concepts. And in verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember, so that I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So, my friends, this covenant sign, both to calm the fears of Noah and his sons, but also that God himself would remember. Now, of course, God needs no reminder. God knows that he made this covenant. He will never renege on his covenant. His promise stands faithful for all ages. And yet you see the the tenderness, right? The, The humanness, can I say, of this account that God says, then I will see the bow and I will remember. Now, my friends, the idea of covenant signs is something that we see for the first time here in in Genesis and and we'll see it later on as well. In fact, if you you turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, this is the covenant that God made with Moses and with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And there we read about another covenant sign. In Exodus 12 and verse 13, Exodus 12 and verse 13, This is, uh, Exodus 12 is the chapter about the Passover. And now notice what it says, that after the the Israelites uh, smear the blood on the doorposts of their houses, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Pass over, right? The Passover. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, you can, re- you can imagine that the, the people living in that house would begin to wonder. That destroying angel that's going to go through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family, will it come to my house? Well, you can imagine that the father of the household could take his children, he could take his wife, and he could say, look, 
Look at the blood. That is a sign that God's uh, uh, angel of death will not come to this house. And that God is in covenant with us. And that he will protect us and keep us. Uh, let me take you to Genesis. Oh, I missed this one. I was supposed to do this one first. But Genesis 17, this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. So let's back up to Genesis 17. And I think you already know what this covenant sign is. But here we have another covenant sign that God made with Abraham. And you can see that in verse 10, Genesis 17 and verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So my friends, we have these these covenant signs that God makes with his people for the confirming, for the strengthening of their faith. And what can we say about these signs? That they are visible. They have to be visible. Right? Circumcision was visible. The rainbow was visible. The Passover blood was visible. It had to be something visible that you could see with your eyes. And it was a perpetual sign. It was a perpetual sign. For as long as that covenant was in existence, that was a sign for the people of that covenant, for both God and for those with whom God was in covenant. Covenant signs. Now, my friends... Uh, Again, in this sermon, I'll make my applications after each of these three sections instead of waiting at the end. So let me make some points of application on those covenant signs. Now, my friends, we all know and we've all experienced in our life that doubt is a part of the Christian life. We sang that. That's why we sang from Psalm 77. In fact, the, the words of this psalm are quite striking. I'm reading from the Psalter hymnal now. But in Psalm 77... Verse 2, it says, the thought of God brought me no peace. Now, that's a very striking phrase there, my friends. That the very thought of God brought me no peace. And I can think, my friends, that as Noah and his sons saw those dark clouds of rain beginning to form, those storm clouds, the thought of God didn't bring them any peace. Because the thought of God would have raised ideas in their minds about God's judgments about to come upon the land. Furthermore, my friends, doubt can be such a painful thing for us because again, I, in verse 3 of this psalm that we sang, recalling days when faith was bright, when songs of gladness filled my night, I pondered over my grievous woes. Isn't it the case that in the life of God's children, faith can be bright, faith can be strong, We can be full of a sense of God's presence. We can be full of boldness for the cause of God. But then different times come, don't they? And we feel as if God has abandoned us. We feel as if God's left us. And we begin to wonder, we begin to question, we begin to doubt. And we begin to ask these questions that we sang in verse 4. I asked in fear and bitterness, Will God forsake me in distress? Shall I His promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? My friends, that's the first lesson I want to learn from this this scripture on covenant signs 
is that doubt is not a strange experience in the life of God's people. There comes times when darkness can seem to descend upon them. There comes time when even the promise of God appears to be shaky. Can I really rely upon it? Will God really save me? Am I really a Christian? When these experiences happen in our life, my friends, we are not to think that this is something strange happening to us. So many of the Psalms speak to precisely this condition. But my friends, this morning I'm not talking about Psalms, but I'm talking about our covenant signs that God gives to his weak and stumbling people. Because right here, my friends, in the front of the church, it is visibly represented for us at least four times a year in this assembly that God takes covenant signs. He takes bread and he breaks it. And when the pastor does it, what does he do? Does he do it over here? No, he does it up. Everybody can see it. And he pours that wine, right? He pours it out just like the blood of Christ was poured out. And what is all this, my friends, but a covenant sign? It is a sign that God gives to us. That when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he will never fail us. At other times, my friends, the the, the lid of this font right here is pulled back. And the water is sprinkled on the head of a child. Or perhaps a person is taken and immersed into water in a river or wherever, right? And we see it. We see it. We see it with our eyes. And it's a covenant sign. And it speaks to our faith, my friends. And it tells us, well, what does our form? You remember that, my friends. Our form says, right? Uh, When we have the Lord's Supper, what does it say? Take, eat, remember, and believe. And that word remember is so key, my friends. Remember. When Noah saw the rainbow, it's as if God said, Noah, look, remember, and believe. Trust. Remember the covenant I made with you. Many years ago, maybe it was, when still those rain clouds would fill Noah with terror. Remember and trust. Remember and believe. And in the same way, my friends, when these children are baptized, or if an adult is baptized in our, in our midst and we see it, then our form says, baptism signifies or signs and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. My friends, I ask you this morning, do you treasure these covenant signs? I know you do. And I know I do. Sometimes they can become rather routine. Sometimes we, especially when a baby is baptized, sometimes we can get lost in it and the kind of sentimentality of it. And the, and how nice and precious it is that this little baby, but my friends, let's not, re, let's not forget the covenant sign. Right? that we deserve a flood of God's wrath and judgment to come upon us. But God gives us a visible sign of his love, and he calls upon us in those hours when the sacraments are observed amongst us to remember and believe. Does your faith shake, my friend? Does your faith waver? Are there times? I know there are. There are times when we, and sometimes it's our own maybe I should say most of the time, it's our own fault, isn't it? That when we sin, or when we begin to leave off the practices of godliness, when we begin to leave off secret times of prayer, when we begin to leave off our Bible reading and study, when we begin to leave uh, and maybe aren't as faithful in the house of God as we ought to be, 
than times of darkness. We bring it upon ourselves. But for all that, it's still there, isn't it? And what is the answer then, my friends? The answer is to come back into the house of God and to see, to see the bread broken. And when we have a baptism, to see that water poured out and to remember and believe. These covenant signs are so precious, my friends. I hope you see them for what they are. Well, so much for the first point. And again, I I almost apologize now because the second point is a completely different thought. But at any rate, let's move now to the Hamas problem, as I've called it here, the Hamas problem. And you know that the word Hamas is just the Hebrew and also the Arabic word for violence. Do recall, my friends, that in Genesis 6, when God originally judged the earth, what was the sin that God specifically identifies? In Genesis 6, verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. This is the sin that God specifically identifies as the problem with earth. And then in verse 12, God looks on the earth, and he resolves to destroy it. Verse uh, six and then, uh, Chapter 6 and verse 11, but then also in verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. So we have this problem that the, the, the world was filled with violence, physical violence, right? And violence of all kinds. Understand that word in a broad sense um, of uh, stealing from people, of murder and of rape. And uh, we saw last time that the, the sons of Seth saw the daughters of Cain. They just took as many as they wanted, right? You see the idea of violence and all these different concepts. Violence, God sees, and it makes God very angry. Well, then God institutes a, a law in Genesis 9, which is going to deal with this, or at least take aim at this problem of violence. And the principle given us is right there in Genesis 9. And, and you can, we can start in verse 3, where God says that he gives every moving thing that is alive is food for you. By the way, uh, any person is free to be a vegetarian, but let us never say that it's wrong to eat meat. God clearly allows the eating of meat in verse 3. But then notice in verse 4, God says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now that verse is a bit, it may mean that you know, we're not to eat blood. I think it's more likely that, that at this time, especially in light of this violence, that this violence extended even to animals and that people were even in the habit of eating animals alive, even eating animals even with the blood still pumping through them. Uh, in Israelite history, uh, it was the Assyrians who actually had a, a, a custom of actually doing that, eating an animal uh, as quickly as possible, even while it was living. And while the blood was still, I know that sounds revolting to us, but uh, this actually is the case. So it may very well mean that don't let this violence even extend to how you eat. Kill an animal, prepare it, drain its blood out, and cook it properly and eat it, to paraphrase that text. Don't eat the blood Don't eat the animal while it's living. And then in verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now here is the principle then of the sanctity of human life. That human life, again, this is not applying to animal life, right? Animal life, animals may be eaten and properly cooked and prepared and eaten, but human life is uniquely sacred in the eyes of God. And you'll notice that even an animal 
that takes a life must be must, must say give an account. He, from a, it says from every beast I will require it. In other words, I will require an accounting. You have to give an answer for it. And of course, the beast would be killed for doing that, for killing a uh, a human. And then in verse six we have the the principle that's very well known to all of us: whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now, my friend, here we have then this principle of the death penalty or of capital punishment. And the first thing I want to point out to you is when God gave this command. Notice that the death penalty or capital punishment, the idea that if if somebody takes somebody's life, right, and they are duly convicted of it and it's a murder of the first degree, then that person does not get to keep their life. They must lose their life. Now, we know that this was also a law of the Mosaic law that of the Mosaic laws which God gave to his people, this was one of them. But I want to point out to you when God gave this law, that this law was given to Noah long before the Mosaic law ever was even thought of. And that's important, because remember that at the coming of Christ, the Mosaic laws, right, those civil laws which governed Israelite society, were taken away. They were removed. So if we knew that the capital punishment or the law of capital punishment was given to Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, we would be justified to conclude that now it was taken away unless there was something in the New Testament that led us to believe it was reinstituted by Christ. But now I just point out to you that the capital punishment law is given us to Noah, which means that this is now a timeless principle for all people in all places and at all times. This is not a time-bound law that God gave merely to his people Israel. This is for all people, for all times, and for all places. And that's why it's important to note when God gave this command. And then I want to give you the reason. The reason. Notice in verse 5, because many times we hear today that uh, the reason for the death penalty, the reason for it, Uh, It would be to preserve good order in society or that maybe uh, the death penalty should be instituted because it deters people from murdering others. Um, And there are other answers. There are other answers that are given. But notice that's not the answer that's given here. Those might be good things. Those might be things that actually happen. But even if the death penalty never deterred a single murderer, the death penalty, my friends, is instituted by God for purposes of justice. Of justice. Notice the language in verse 5. Surely I will require. And then again, from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require. That's in verse 5. The life of man. This is the reason why God requires. He requires, he expects an answer. The word require there, you can think of it as, as if God sets up his court. You've killed somebody, now you have to give an answer for it. You have to give an accounting for it. Not that it's always wrong to kill a person. But God is going to require an answer. He requires an accounting. Again, the principle given here, my friends, is justice. Not that it would be a deterrent. Those are all side issues. But that it is simple justice. That God says, if you took a man's life, if you took the life of a human without just cause, 
You do not get to keep your own life. So that kind of justice, again, we often hear people say, well, will it be a deterrent? Especially when there's discussions on a government level of should the government institute the death penalty? Will it be a deterrent? Will it actually stop more murders from happening? Those are all side issues in the, in the light of Scripture. God requires an answer. He sets up his court and he wants to know, was justice done? Now, by whom? This also is given us in this chapter. Remember that earlier, uh, when Cain killed Abel, God took care of the problem. God punished Cain. But now, the situation changes. And you might say God delegates this power, this authority, to man. In verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now, by which man? This text doesn't tell us. But we know that later on in Romans 13, in Romans 13, right, we are told that it's the governing, the governing authorities who bear the sword, who bear the sword. In other words, they bear the instrument that is used to perform capital punishment. But at any rate, it's noteworthy here that by man, his blood shall be shed. No longer is God going to do this in a direct way. That doesn't mean that God doesn't ever do it. Think only of Ananias and Sapphira, right? But that means that in a normal way of human society, God has now delegated that to man to execute those who commit murder. And then, my friends, we are told why. Now, I already gave you the reason before, which was just simple justice. But now God carries that further in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed for... In the image of God, he made man. Now that means, my friends, that human beings are unique in this regard. That unlike all the animal creatures, and by the way, do notice that God even does respect the life of animals, right? I think that was behind that verse, right? That uh, you shall not eat the flesh with its life, right? That there is still a respect and a kindness due to animals. A later proverb says, the man of the righteous respects the life of his beast. But at any rate, now God says uh, humans are unique. Their life is uniquely valuable. Why? Because it was made in my image. Now, my friends, one of the uh, one of the purposes or one of the arguments that we often hear today is that Christians should have a pro-life approach and a a whole life approach. And by that, they mean that we should oppose abortion. And we should oppose capital punishment. Because abortion takes a life, and therefore we should oppose it. And capital punishment takes a life. And therefore we should oppose that as well. But my friends, this scripture does not allow that option to Christians. Because man is made in the image of God. You see, my friends, it's been reversed. The scripture teaches us that because man is made in the image of God... His life is uniquely valuable. And for that very reason, if you take a human life without just cause, you do not get to keep your own. In other words, if you commit that heinous of a sin of taking a human life without just cause, then the very worst punishment that man can mete out to you must be given to you. You see, let's say that God said for every... Uh, and I know this is kind of silly, but if, if God said, you, if we should find $500 if you take a human life with unjust cause, right? Well, that's 
That's not the worst punishment that could be given to a person, right? But God now says that the very highest punishment that can be given must be given to those who take a human life because human life is so uniquely valuable and precious. And so let's not fall for that, for that false way of thinking that, that, that if we're going to be thoroughly pro-life, we should also oppose capital punishment. No, it's the very reason we hold to sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life, my friends, leads us to the position that if you take a human life, you lose your own life. So that is the principle of capital punishment. And I think that's why we should support the idea and, uh, of, of governments uh, executing those who commit capital crimes. Now, what, 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 what are capital crimes? And there the Bible doesn't help us, right? I shouldn't say it doesn't help us. There the Bible doesn't give us a list of which crimes are capital. Now, it does in the, in the Mosaic laws. In the Mosaic laws, there are, is a list of which crimes require the person to lose his life. But again, we don't. those laws have been removed for us. Those civil laws are not binding on us anymore. But still, even this text, I would say, would still give us some help. For instance, some people would say, well, would kidnapping or would rape be considered a capital crime? Well, would those crimes be considered a kind of murder, as it were? That they're so, they're so heinous, as it were, that it, 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 even though the person's heart is still beating, their life has been so ruined that it's almost as if they've been murdered. Again, there's a general principle there that jurists can use to apply this principle even in our day and time. But there obviously would be some room for disagreements there. Well, I I leave that point, my friends. The sanctity of human life as it's given us here in Genesis 9. And I move to my last point, which is prophecy. Prophecy. Because as we come to the end of this chapter, we see again... The proof of what God said earlier, that the, the heart of human, uh, human persons is inclined to evil. Now, we start with Noah. Because it's not entirely clear here, my friends, that Noah sinned. Because it's not entirely clear that Noah understood the effects of drinking the, the fruit of the vine. It says he began farming. And planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. It is possible here that that Noah unintentionally did this and didn't realize that this drink, which tasted so good, was also going to make him drunk. Now, it's also possible the other way, that he did know very well what it would do. And he carelessly drank and became drunk. And then he uncovered himself inside his tent. The focus of of the... of the text, of course, is not on what uh, Noah did, but on what Ham and Canaan did. But then we have this this troubling, this very troubling thing of the the text describes for us what Ham did. Ham, it says in verse 22, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And we can imagine that that Ham saw it with, with some delight and some uh, scoffing and mocking at the nakedness of his father. But then in verse 25, Noah says, pronounces a curse, not upon Ham, but upon Canaan. God says, so he said, cursed be Canaan. And of course, naturally, we our sense of justice is a bit offended there. Why would God curse the son of Ham when it was Ham that committed the sin? Now, I tell you, uh, I spent a good deal of time on this this week, 
There's a lot of different answers that people give to this. But I think one answer that makes a great deal of sense to me is this. And that is, we must always remember, my friends, when we're reading these historical accounts, that this history is not always given us for the same purpose that you might say you would have in a newspaper article. Right? If we read a newspaper article about the traffic conditions last night, right, we would expect to read a a general survey of different things that happened around the city with all the details that we need to know to understand the traffic conditions. Or if there was a, 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 an account of, for instance, what happened on January 6th when there was the, uh, the riots at the Capitol building, right? You would want to read all the different details of what happened and who died and why and so on and so forth. But that's not what this kind of history is. The Bible history, and this, this, this applies to almost all the history in the Bible, is history written with a purpose. It is what we call theological history. And so it is not written to give us all the accounts and all the details of each story that we might want to know. But it is written to teach us about God. And the same thing applies to this history. And so, my friends, it's very possible that Canaan was the one who discovered Noah's nakedness and went and told Ham, his father, and they both scoffed and laughed at him and then went and told Japheth and Shem to come and join them. I don't know. But I do know this, that the, this story is not given us to tell us about what happened between uh, Ham and Noah and his nakedness. This story is given us because the narrator wants to get quickly to verse 25. The narrator wants to get to the curse that Noah pronounced and the blessing that Noah pronounced. Why? Because that is prophetic about what is coming in Israelite history. And that God who is sovereign over the nations gave prophetic insight to Noah so that he cursed Canaan, not Ham. Why Canaan? Well, what happened to Canaan in later days? What do we read about in the book of Numbers? When Israel came to the land of Canaan, they destroyed it utterly. and God punished Canaan. You see, that's what's in the narrator's mind, the storyteller's mind here, right? And when Moses writes this history, he wants to give us this account of Noah's prophetic insight into the lot of these different nations that were going to come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's why he might say, he he breezes over real quickly this story of Ham and seeing his father naked and Noah getting drunk. Doesn't give us the details. And of course, now many thousands of years later, we wonder, well, what really happened there? But you see, that's not the question the text is trying to answer. And I know that might be irritating to us because we want to know the details, right? Right? But again, the, the, the author wants to take us immediately to this section on cursed be Canaan. And what do we read in the book of Numbers? God's dreadful curse that came down upon those people. And they were destroyed by the children of Israel for their sin and wickedness. And later on, the blessing of, of, of God on Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. We know that the Jewish people came from Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And that was prophetically fulfilled, right? When Israel conquered the land of Canaan. And in verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth, the Gentile nations coming from Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, and that's again, the the Gentile nations came to participate in the Jewish religion. Not in the Jewish religion, but shall we say the Judeo-Christian religion, right? The Messiah, whom the Jews expected, the Christians of all nations, came 
to believe and to trust in him. And so we have here a a prophetic insight from Noah. Not a story about Ham and Canaan and Noah's sin, right? You might say the author just, you might say, threw those details in there because it led up to the story of Noah giving this blessing. And so in the inspiration of God, under the inspiration of God, these authors didn't give us a blow-by-blow account. And so we have to, we have to, uh, we have to read the story and be satisfied with not knowing everything that we might like to know. At any rate, my friends, to apply, to make application from this story, we see the glorious supremacy of God over all nations, don't we? That he sets up one nation and he takes down another. No nation was more successful and flourishing than the Canaanite nations. Right? We read that in the book of Numbers of the kings and the fabulous cities that they had there. The city of Jericho itself was just an amazing city. The wealth and, 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 the, and the power that they had. But yet God crushed them under the uh, onslaught of his people when they came into that country and wiped out the Canaanites. And they became the servants of the Jewish people. God is supreme over all lands and all nations. And that's why I end the sermon by reading from the book of Daniel. That's really the whole theme of the book of Daniel, God's sovereignty over the nations. But in Daniel 2 and verse 21, after Nebuchadnezzar tells his dream to Daniel, in Daniel 2 and verse 21, Daniel replies, and Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs, He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. My friends, I hope that's where we can end this morning. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Especially as we look back at our own elections in our own country. And as we look around the world, we see wars in Ukraine and Russia and and many other conflicts likewise. And we can rest in the supreme sovereignty of God over all lands and peoples and nations. And we can give praise to his glorious name. And we can rest confident. There's a resting place, my friends, for the people of God to rest calmly in the sovereignty of our glorious King and our God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this morning, as we heard, the God of Noah. May God bless these words to us. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this hour of worship. We've reflected, Lord, upon these three things, the covenant signs, the sanctity of life, and the prophecy of Noah given to us at the end of Genesis 9. And Lord, we end in you in all these things. We end in your glorious mercy, which gives us these signs, so that when moments of doubt, when moments of fear and anxiety begin to rise in our hearts, when we begin to question ourselves, that we can see these glorious signs, Lord, which you've given us. And we can still see the rainbow and remember the sign that you gave to Noah. But we also see the signs of Christ's broken body and his shed blood set before us. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Lord, we thank you also that you've taught your people and taught all people the sanctity of human life. And as we see this principle compromised on all sides, Lord, in our day, we know that this sin is a stench in your nostrils. And we pray, O God, that you'd give repentance, that we would know the truth, and that you'd give also to our nation, O Lord, to return to the truth. 
and to put into practice these principles which your word does clearly teach us. Lord, I pray that you would give us also respect for human life, that we would respect others and the freedom that they have to make their own choices and to go their own way, and that we, O oh Lord, would learn to love our fellow man, whatever they might believe, whatever they might profess, however they might act, and that we would see your image in even the most debauched and depraved criminal, that we would know that even this one is an image-bearer of God. Your image-bearer, O oh Lord, and he is, in that sense, valuable in your sight. Lord, I pray that you would bless us also as we reflect upon the curse which you have placed on Canaan and the blessing which you have placed on Shem and Japheth, and that we would see, O oh Lord, that you are the one who sets up kings and who takes them down. You are the one who visits a, a judgment, the kind of judgment that we see was brought on Canaan in the land of Canaan by your children, the Israelites. And I pray, O oh God, that we would take refuge and that we would be God-fearers, that we would be those who love and honor your holy name, so that we could dwell among the tents of Shem, that we could rejoice and glory and make our boast in the Messiah of Shem, the Messiah of the Jewish people, who is also our great king and high priest and our prophet. Lord, we take refuge in him this morning. We find in him all our boast, all our glory. And I pray, O God, that we might live for him and die in him and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, let's take the blue hymnal and turn to number 477. Four hundred and seventy-seven. We'll sing the four verses. O God, beneath thy guiding hand, our exiled fathers crossed the sea. And when they trod the wintry strand, with prayer and psalm, they worshipped thee. We'll sing the four verses of 477 in the blue hymnal.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.